Welcome to ACME Talks and Live Events. You are listening to a podcast from the Australian Centre for the Moving Image. This talk has been recorded in front of a live studio audience. This podcast is an audio recording of a live event. It may reference visual material that cannot be represented in this recording. It may also contain strong language and adult themes, which may not be suitable for younger audiences. And the opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect those of ACME. Uh, my name's Sean. I'm a program producer here at ACME. And I'd like to welcome you all to Studio One this evening for our very first edition of Live in the Studio for the year. Uh, for those of you that don't know, uh, Live in the Studio is ACME's ongoing series of talks that explores the small screen. And tonight, of course, we're taking a trip to the lockup and having a look at television behind bars. Uh, donning a metaphorical warden's uniform tonight and leading this evening's exploration of programs including Prisoner, Wentworth, and of course Orange is the New Black will be the criminally awesome Jess McGuire. Uh, <laughs> Jess is well known as a writer, a broadcaster, and a critic, as well as being a killer DJ for hire and basically the queen of the local trivia scene. Uh, and she'll no doubt be a tough as nails screw that will keep the speakers in line tonight. Uh, and those speakers are, of course, um, from your right to left, a writer, broadcaster, maker of awesome T-shirts, an all-round wonderful boner killer, Clementine Ford, uh, writer, critic, and theatre wo- world controversy starter, Byron Bache, and comedian, writer, poet, and massive Cell Block H fan, Ben Pobji. Uh, Now, before I hand over to the panel, uh, just a few quick housekeeping. Uh, We are recording for a podcast tonight, so if you can turn your phones off, that would be great. Uh, If anyone needs to go to the bathroom or leave the space at all, if you you could just exit and enter via this uh, side passage here rather than that door, that would be great. But apart from that, uh, enjoy this evening, and please make our panel of guests and your host for this evening welcome. Ladies and gentlemen, it's my great pleasure to welcome you here to the Australian Centre of Moving Image. Now, in the world of television, shows based in correctional facilities are considered especially entertaining. At ACME, the dedicated panel of members who investigate these vicious programs are members of an elite squad known as the TV Behind Bars Unit. These are their stories. (laughs) The amount of coordination needed between me and the sound guy to make that work Top stuff, mate. Top stuff. Uh, <clears throat> good gag. Worth the, worth the effort. Uh, I'm going to introduce you to the panel first of all. Ben Pobji is a writer, a comedian and a poet. As a writer, he is freakishly prolific, having produced three books and six years' worth of new Matilda columns, amongst other things, and he's now just landed the plum job of being the daily television writer at Fairfax. You can catch his surreal comedy stylings at this year's Melbourne International Comedy Festival in a show called... Trigger warning, which I'm sure won't be offensive to anyone, Ben. That's exactly right. And he's also still poeting from time to time. Uh, Maybe tonight we'll inspire some free verse. By request. Yeah. Does anyone... No. Do you want to do one now? Well, no, no. I mean, the trouble with poetry is it's very unpopular. Yeah. There's no money in it. (laughs) Not like writing full time. (laughs) No money or self-esteem in it. Well. So, I I mean, if people want poetry... I don't know why they're here, but... Yeah, this is the wrong event for you. I have seen Ben do poetry that was so hilariously offensive that an old lady yelled out his name in a chastising manner. Ben Bobji! It was really good. <laughs> that, was... that was one of my favourite oh, yeah, yeah. moments. I remember that. It happened. It's not for the no, intro. No, I remember. I Let's move on. 
Byron Bache is a theatre critic for the Herald Sun, a TV critic for Crikey and a professional procrastinator. He's been fired by Channel 9, described as snotty-nosed by John Michael Housen. That's the, <laughs> the pot calling the kettle black Boy. there. Uh, and he's been called a talentless douche by Anthony Collier. Again. I'll leave that one alone. His elbow and shoulder appeared in two episodes of Heartbreak High. It's true. Were they the Drasic years? Yes. The best. The only uh, years. <laughs> and uh, Mia Friedman once told him he was weird but right. But that's different to being weird but right-wing, right? <laughs> yeah, good, excellent. And uh, I had a look at Clementine Ford's bio and it revealed an angry feminist inexplicably paid to share her man-hating screeds at Fairfax's women's section. That's actually what it says. I'm quoting that verbatim. I'm not summarising it like that. Uh, in addition to corrupting the minds of young women, she's also a frequent guest on ABC 774, a semi-frequent guest on the ABC The Drum website, and uh, blink and miss it guest in passing at Channel 9's Mornings. Who hosts Mornings these days? Uh, David Campbell? David Campbell? Um, David Campbell's girdle. Oh, and that woman who was on Dancing with the Stars and Strictly Ballroom. Kylie Sonia something? Kruger. Sonia Kruger. Oh, Sonia's wonderful. Well, how nice for you then. You must have had a really great time. Uh, you might also remember her as a panellist on the ABC's on-air stream of Twitter that's called Q&A. Uh, she said a swear word and then she asked Malcolm Turnbull when he was going to challenge for the leadership and apparently they haven't asked her back since. <laughs> it's a question we're all still waiting uh, to have answered. Uh, Clementine watches a lot of TV, which means she's more than qualified to participate in tonight's panel. Please welcome our guests for this evening. Now, we're going to start with Ben Pobji. Like the Skyhawks, Ben Pobji loves women in uniform, and particularly if it's a Wentworth Detention Centre trademark denim ensemble. Some may watch the 80s classic Prisoner, and, uh, and they probably like it because of its high camp values, its wobbling sets, and the fact that any Australian actress over the age of 40 got her beginning in there. There's a lot of star spotting. But Ben thinks that Prisoner is more than just a kitschy good time. He also thinks it's a progressive television game changer. He's going to convince you that he's onto something. Ben Pobji, talk us through your appreciation of Prisoner Selbock H. That's the um, first lesson of screw killing. Hit her from behind before you start bantering. <laughs> See, um, yeah, the freak said it's... It was her style that hit her from behind. But B tried to fight honourably for some reason. Anyway, there's a, after that, there's a, there's a big fire and the freak comes and beats up B. It's all, it's all very violent. I'm not going to tell you that that is the best TV show ever made um, because you probably wouldn't believe me. Uh, but I'm going to tell you that it is a very important TV show. Uh, in February 1979, two things happened that would turn out to be game changers in the history of Australian entertainment. Firstly, I was born. <laughs> and secondly, a new show premiered on Channel 10, set in a women's prison, and changed the face of Australian television forever. Now, looking at that show now, it's easy to see it as a... Uh, quaint relic, the days when the sets were made of cardboard, nobody was allowed to swear, and accomplished and talented artists were forced to share the screen with unknown amateurs 
possessing about as much acting talent as an apricot. And uh, if you... How many people here have, um, have watched a lot of Prisoner? Oh, well, Preaching with the Converted. <laughs> uh, you, anyone who does will know that some of the acting was you know, bad enough to, to cause tumours. <laughs> but if you sit down to watch it, really watch it, to concentrate on it, absorb the stories and the characters and issues, and most importantly, remember the time it was made. It ran from 1979 to 1986. I think Prisoner was the most progressive, even revolutionary program ever to air, ever made in Australia. First of all, it was a show about women. vast majority of the cast were women. Storylines revolve around women. The action is driven by women. 80% of the male characters in Prisoner were kindly doctors or rapists. (laughs) Women weren't playing second fiddle to the heroes. They were the heroes. Now, of course, these days, big deal. We've got lots of shows about women. You've got, you know, mad women and two and a half women and... There's women everywhere. Um, In 1979, it was a little bit more unusual to have this show that was all women, wall to wall. Secondly, the women in it were not TV land women. They weren't glamour pusses, society ladies, dutiful wives or sex kittens. Or rather, if they were... They were in for a short, sharp shock when they arrived at Wentworth because that was the way of things. If a refined lady arrives at Wentworth, pretty quickly someone's going to bash her or cut her hair off while she sleeps or something to take her down a peg. They go in, society ladies. They come up against the overall clad hard asses. They come out changed. Women in prisoner didn't look like celebrities, came in all shapes and sizes. They would happily punch, kick and pull each other's hair if given half a chance. And they spoke as vulgarly as they were allowed to for the time. That language, fairly mild nowadays. It's a bit like when you uh, watch old episodes of Home and Away and everyone's calling each other a dag, as if it's the worst thing in the world. But uh, back then, hearing so many women with so many bad haircuts, call each other bitches so often, was positively scandalous. But the real revolution wasn't just the fact that a show was finally willing to show women being nasty and rough as guts. It was the fact that the women in the show, even amongst the shaky sets and beset at times by questionable dialogue and ropey acting, were actually incredibly complex. They had layers. Look at the freak herself. The legend of Joan Ferguson is that she was one of TV's great monsters, a personification of pure evil, which, to an extent, she was. Just as a side note, um, pay attention to the music there. That's how you know some bad shit's going to go down in Prisoner is when you hear the... The freak had a heart, a heart hardened by heartbreak, She was not committing atrocities because she was Satan incarnate. She had a tragic past 
and a tragic present. We saw her beating and molesting prisoners, selling drugs, stealing, obstructing justice, but we also saw her caring for a runaway child, mourning for her dead dog, and crying over the end of a relationship. Incidentally, her dead dog was uh, killed by Joan herself whilst under the influence of drugs that she had accidentally taken. Uh, and if you ever get the chance to look up on YouTube The Freak's Drug Trip, I advise you to watch it because it is the funniest thing you'll ever see in your life. How did you not bring that clip tonight? I couldn't find it. It's, it's, it's so hard. Most of the clips on, uh, of Prisoner on um, YouTube are entire episodes. It's incredible. Uh, the point is, the stereotype of the... Or, or what is remembered of the freak character is that she was evil, she put on her black gloves, she felled up Doreen, she beat the shit out of everyone. But actually, what you had here was actually a character where the audience got to see why she did what she did, why she was so angry, why she hated the prisoners, and to see she wasn't evil all the time. Which was, you know, back then, something of a change of direction for a, sh for a TV show, when TV generally dealt in goodies and baddies, especially Australian TV. And the freak wasn't the only one. Prisoner had its heroes and villains, but the heroes always had their streaks of villainy and the villains their moments of heroism. B. Smith, who you remember from the earlier clip, practising bad screw-bashing technique. B. Smith was on the side of the angels, but she also slammed poor Kerry Armstrong's hand in the steam press and was really mean to some relatively nice drug dealers. Kath Maxwell was a Machiavellian tyrant, but her misdeeds stemmed from a tragic life and she was never as nasty as she acted. Nobody in Wentworth ever was, apart from uh, the, uh, the Go-Go-Mobile man who, uh, who played a prison guard and killed some people. Cruelty was common, but the crueler you were in Wentworth, the more likely it was that your next scene would be crying over a picture of your daughter or staring sadly at the wall after your mother didn't turn up for a visit. Point is, Prisoner wasn't about women who had been born criminals. It was about women who turned to crime in times of grief or desperation, which, again, major development in, t in TV, especially Australian TV, which up to then had had a lot of cop shows where it was very much the cops are fighting the good fight against the, the tide of evil on the streets whether driven to burglary by poverty or to murder by revenge, there was always a reason they'd ended up inside, and this itself was pretty bold for 1979. It's doubtful whether any show previously had taken such non-judgmental stances towards sex workers or drug addicts. It's doubtful whether any show had till then been so sympathetic to victims of domestic violence or sufferers of mental illness. In fact, the enlightened attitudes to those subjects in Prisoner would put a lot of depictions in today's media to shame. They weren't necessarily particularly well-written or well-acted, but the attitudes were amazingly progressive. Prisoner was an absolute pioneer in television simply by acknowledging that real life is messy and complicated. 
which is not to say, obviously, that it was by any means hyper-realistic. Life's tough on the inside. You never know when someone might throw a book at you. (laughs) That was uh, young Sigrid Thornton as Ros Coulson, the most dangerous book hurler in Melbourne at the time. Now, I can't say whether the hard realities of life on the inside ever reach such dramatic heights as having books thrown at you. Occasionally, chairs got thrown. I think probably real prison life is a bit more brutal than would have been allowed on primetime TV 35 years ago. When punches were thrown, you always got the feeling that Fist had missed face by about two feet. When the top dog slammed her in his face into a wall, you always got the feeling that the wall had nearly fallen over. And when the prisoners held a fashion parade or started zipping around cell block H on roller skates, you always got the feeling that this was getting very, very silly. In fact, one advantage that the, uh, the two other shows that you're going you're gonna to see tonight has over Prisoner is that these more recent prison shows have someone employed who has uh, had experience of prison life who can sit in the writer's room and when the writers suggest a plotline involving prisoners on roller skates, they can say, that doesn't actually happen. Most ridiculous of all, Prisoner was set in a universe where politicians were always deathly afraid that the public would think they were being too tough on prisoners. In the real world, every time a Wentworth inmate went to the press with lurid stories of mistreatment, and this happened about every three weeks, the government's approval ratings would skyrocket. But in Prisonerland, the Minister for Corrections was constantly being spooked by the possibility of the papers reporting that the women were having a hard time. But of course, Prisoner was a product of its time, and that's the context I want you to see it in, not as the greatest show ever made, but as a show which broke new ground. Graphic sex and violence couldn't be shown on the screen, F-bombs and C-bombs couldn't be dropped, real walls were too expensive. (laughs) Prisoner was working in the constraints of its era, and that's why at first glance it can look to us cheap, melodramatic and quaint. But in depicting as well as it could the real issues that beset society by tackling the lives of women and the hardships and abuses they often suffered, by refusing to reduce character to a matter of goodies versus baddies, I submit that you can put Prisoner up against any show broadcast up till then, and you'll find it more realistic, more socially conscious, and more daring in its approach to taboo subjects and its willingness to suggest that criminality was neither inherent nor best addressed through harsh punishment than anything else you can find. Prisoner truly was the most progressive program of its era, and I think, when viewed in context, the most progressive program of any era. There's a hell of a lot of TV that wouldn't have existed without the path that Prisoner paved. Thank you very much. Thank you, Ben. I have a couple of things I want to take you to task on and quiz you about, if that's okay. You comfortable with that? I don't know if I'm comfortable being taken to task. Well, I was a bit upset when you said there was no one who was a sex kitten. It's Lizzie Birdworth, John John Liver. I'm actually really curious because I'm going to now use you as my expert on all things prisoner cell block H. Do you think it was very progressive as far as queer representation is concerned? Because it seems to me, from my memory of Frankie Doyle and obviously uh, 
Joan Ferguson, mm. it seemed if you were a lesbian in prison, you were probably evil, whether you were a screw or whether you were a prisoner. Is that pretty accurate, or was there any no. sympathetic queer characters? No, there, there definitely were. There was uh, Judy, um, played by Betty Bobbitt, who was... Betty Bobbitt. Betty Bobbitt. I like the way you say that, as though I should know. Oh, Betty Bobbitt's early work. Mm. Um, and, 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 and she was uh, a lesbian, and um, she was in it... I mean, Frankie Doyle was in it for maybe 20 episodes. Judy was in it for about 400. Um, and she was very much, you know, she was the conscience of, of the prison. Oh, I know. Who was she American? Yeah, yeah. Oh, she was a lovely lesbian. Good work. So, um, <laughs> yeah, pe- people do remember. I mean, even Frankie um, was depicted as sort of unstable and filled with rage. But well, she a had lesbian, a... as I said, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but um, but um, she, she was, again, it, it showed people... People showed, you know, she she had a bad past. There were reasons she was the way she, way she was. She was depicted quite sympathetically mm. in the end, even though the sh- the show very much started with a bang with Frankie causing trouble. Mm. Um, but yeah, there, there was, as I say, certainly by the standards of today, it wasn't um, massively queer friendly. I'm not trying to leave but, a Dunham. Um, prisoner and sort of say, why didn't it represent everyone? But next question is, how was it with representing uh, people of colour? I don't really remember anyone in there that wasn't white. That was, that's probably the most a fair, glaring a fair thing. comment, yeah. Um, there, were, there were, late in the series, there were a couple of Indigenous characters. Mm. Um, but yeah, they, they sort of stuck to, usually it didn't get much more ethnically diverse than, you know, a Greek or Italian. Mm. Um, or or English, time. or for some reason, Scottish people who were in it disproportionately <laughs> often. Um, but yeah, that, that, that's, that's def- definitely something where it wasn't particularly diverse, particularly compared to how diverse it was in other areas. Mm. And can you tell us much about what the response was at the time? Do you know much of how, how the Australian public reacted? We know that the British love it in all its campy, culty glory, yeah. but... How was it accepted just as a TV show that, that you would just switch on and it would be on Channel 10 at the time or whatever? Um, it was, well, it was huge here and UK and even in America. Mm. Um, there was like um, a Frankie Doyle fan club sprung up very quickly in America, apparently. Um, I actually think that... It was, yeah, I mean, it, it was a big deal, particularly at the start, probably at the end. By the end of its run, it had become a bit sort of part of the furniture mm. kind of thing, but it, it made a big splash as something very different and very new and uh, progressive, but at the same time, it was, it was very, very popular. People, people really got into it. Well, which they're, still, is, they're probably still into it. See, I, as, as, a, as a youth, I was into it because I was able to trick my parents into letting me go to bed on mm. a school night by staying up and watching it at 11 or something that used to be on quite yeah. late at night on a, on a weeknight. I think there might be, and I could be wrong, the president of a prisoner fan club in the crowd said that they might be coming on Facebook. She couldn't make it. Oh, gutted. Sorry, I, I have... I, yeah, she gave her apologies to me. Wow. Which you told me before I... I'm sorry. ...in front of the audience. <laughs> Terrific. Look, we'll, we'll move on from prisoner, and if you have any qu- other questions for Ben, we can get to that towards the end of the night. Our uh, next panellist is Byron Beish, or as I like to call him, Beish, please. <laughs> I've never called him that before and I don't know how he, he's going to respond to it if I ever did. Uh, he's going to be our guide to, uh, to Foxtel's hit contemporary reimagining of Prisoner, 
That was called Wentworth. It came out last year. Yes. Uh, it features more teal tracksuits than I ever imagined possible. <laughs> Byron's going to be discussing whether the high camp elements of prison TV as a whole uh, worked well in Wentworth, if they didn't work well. Are you going to talk about prison TV in general? A little bit. And then you're going to focus in on Wentworth. Yes. Ladies and gentlemen, Byron. <clears throat> so... My introduction to lady prison drama, which is what I'm calling the genre, uh, happened early. I was 14 and we'd just gotten Foxtel. Um, and Will and Grace had only just started airing, so the Arena Channel wasn't yet just 16 hours a day of Deborah Messing pulling faces. Um, the Arena was at 12.30am every weeknight the home of Prisoner. B. Smith, Lizzie Birdsworth and Judy Bryant were my midnight snack buddies for most of that year. And between Prisoner and Channel 7, 6am reruns of Sons and Daughters, I spent most of 1998 yawning. Uh, I didn't have the vocabulary for it then, but the thing I loved was the campness of it all. Um, while my friends were all dying for Heather Lockley's bitch antics on Melrose Place, which I wasn't allowed to watch, uh, I was learning the finer points of female anger from those smocked, desperately in need of conditioner inmates on cell block H. And from there, I devoured Bad Girls, ITV's campy UK female prison show, and for very different reasons, SBS's late night airings of the show that laid the foundations for all that paving of the way The Sopranos did, uh, that rough and tumble, full frontal in the showers jailhouse drama Oz, the HBO show. And from there, the genre kind of petered out for a good 10 years. Uh, I choose not to count Prison Break. For me, Wentworth Miller's a bit like Westfield Doncaster. I know it exists and I hear it's full of wonders, but I just don't have the wherewithal to get there. <laughs> and then uh, last year, or maybe the year before, the press release landed in my inbox. Foxtel were remaking Prisoner. I quickly accepted that I wouldn't be asked to write it, and I set about rearranging my disappointment uh, into anticipation. Sure, it was going to be another Australian drama. And sure, Foxtel didn't have a particularly good track record, if anyone remembers Satisfaction. Uh, but I was excited. Uh, and excited too, because The Sopranos begat The Wire, and The Wire begat Breaking Bad, and now we're living in the golden age of television. Uh, but this golden age of television is an exclusively non-Antipodean affair. Sure, we made the slap, but we also made the strip. For every rake, there's a Wild Boys, a Reef Doctors, and a Tricky Business. TV's cultural dominance is all imported. And we've never been very good at following trends. When Ali McBeal was the biggest thing in the known universe, we tried our hand at dramedy with the irredeemably stupid martial law. The endless search for a police procedural that works has seen a dazzling array of fizzes with only a couple of worthy contenders. But on the rare occasion we get something right in this country, we cleave to it. How else do we explain 43 episode long seasons of All Saints? Six separate incarnations of Good News Week, or the constant flow of shallow, ripped from the headlines telly movies. How long before all we've got left is underbelly, boobs, <laughs> and paper giants, Mia Friedman's hair appointment? <laughs> but it's this stick with things that work mindset that brought us Wentworth, the resulting reimagining of Prisoner. He was doing so much acting, they had to cut the sound and rely on the score. <coughs> So, Wentworth carries only the tiniest traces of its source material. The tweaks are big. Uh, it's the kind of thing that uh, Ron Moore did so successfully with Battlestar Galactica, if any of you have seen the reimagining of that 1978 series. Prisoner's cruel but fair top dog, B. Smith, who you saw covered in blood, uh, literal blood on her hands, uh, is now a terrified, sorcerer-eyed new inmate. 
uh, awaiting trial for the attempted murder of her husband. The geriatric drunk Lizzie Birdsworth is now Liz and she's 30 years younger. Sweet bumbling Doreen, memorably played by a pigtailed Colette man, is now a straight-talking young Indigenous woman. And one of the original series' most beloved characters, Correctional Officer Meg Jackson, is now the prison governor and she's just been shivved to death. It's a piece of a can opener if you're wondering what's sticking out of her chest. Um, so Wentworth's got a few problems. It looks like a TAC ad. Uh, <laughs> all, all the flashbacks have, like a Spielberg war film or Nicole Kidman on a red carpet, had 30% of the colour removed from them in post-production. And everything's colour graded weirdly. The way Steven Soderbergh shoots Mexico through an orange filter, here everything, like Jess said, is teal. Uh, exterior scenes are so weirdly desaturated and messed with that the actors look like they're suffering from terrible simultaneous cases of jaundice and psoriasis. <laughs> Wentworth doesn't really have a voice. Uh, it's more about tone, something it has a clearance sale level overstock of. It's gritty uh, in a very special episode sort of way. There are no greys in this world, only black and white. Uh, there's a junkie, just one. She's barely functional and a terrible mother because, as everyone knows, drug addicts are bad people. Um, alcoholics are good people when they're sober and bad people when they're drinking. <laughs> she lost that baby. I'm sure you're not surprised to hear. There are also lesbians in the show, uh, just like Prisoner. There are two of them. Uh, both of them are thin and attractive, uh, regularly naked, and one of them, the Asian one, never has any lines. <laughs> That's not true. She has 11, I counted 11 lines across 10 episodes. She occasionally speaks. Everyone else is a hard as nails, capital B bitch, except for our protagonist, B. Smith, a passive brooding cipher, and her cellmates, Liz and Doreen, the three of whom are subjected to torment so soapy that all the grit kind of washes off and becomes a soft grey foam that threatens to interrupt all of the sound effects and slow motion. Is it terrible? Or is it camp? Or is it both? <laughs> So, for anybody who's never seen Prisoner, that's the Prisoner theme song that she was singing. <laughs> she just ended it with da-da-da, people learning a word. Wentworth isn't really any good unless you grade it on a curve. Uh, for an Australian drama, it's decent, but out in the real world, it feels like something that would have played really well opposite you know, Jag or Profiler. <laughs> it's, it's clunky, it's characters abroad, and... It relies on the kind of twists and machinations in the plotting that I think even the Days of Our Lives writer's room would think twice about. The overarching mystery of Wentworth's first season is the murder of prison governor Meg Jackson, which you saw. Um, a crime which, in a modern prison saturated with CCTV cameras, happens in a corridor that has no camera in it. Later in the season, B. Smith is brutally bashed by some thugs, and again, seemingly no cameras. There are transition shots of the cameras... Uh, very often, several times an episode, the show will cut to a view through the prison security system. Uh, the screws pour over video feeds of what's going on in the next room, but when the plot requires it, no cameras. The big events are huge. The long-awaited revelations are boring. Wait till you find out who killed her. And there's no nuance, but is it terrible or is it camp? Orange is the new black, which you'll hear Clem talk about and Wentworth have the same flashback storytelling device in common. Each episode includes scenes focusing on a particular ensemble character and their life before prison. Wentworth uses these scenes to show the crimes that got them incarcerated and force feeds us a Cliff Notes version of their motivations. 
Orange is the New Black uses them to flesh out characters and we don't always see the crime. Uh, Wentworth's women are all in for killing or maiming. Orange is the New Black's prisoners are often in for something unremar as unremarkable as credit card fraud. Uh, where Orange is the New Black has flawed, difficult and very real women, Wentworth has puppet bitches with cardboard axes to grind. And therein lies the rub. While Orange is the New Black locates the extraordinary in the ordinary, uh, Wentworth uh, doesn't. Story in a good show comes from the quietest and most unlikely of places. On Orange, it comes from a broken freezer or a chicken or a misplaced screwdriver. Because that's what the prison experience is. Jails are tiny places and prisoners have tiny lives. But Wentworth has no time for the ordinary. Put a screwdriver in the hands of one of Wentworth's hard-faced moles and they'll have meaninglessly jammed it inside someone else within the hour. <laughs> the poor Katrina Milosevic, who plays Boomer, the tall one who burst in, she's the only actor in the show who doesn't get a full face of TV makeup and she looks like she's got a disease. It's... <laughs> She's a brave actor. Um, the only brilliant material in Wentworth uh, is reserved for uh, Vera Bennett, dubbed Vinegar Tits in the original. Uh, she was the stern, red-headed, always in a bun. Screw. Um, but she's been reworked as this kind of uncertain, unworldly, unreadable woman uh, who's hit middle age without ever really living or having sex. Um, played with heartbreaking intensity by Kate Atkinson, who I think is one of our finest working actresses. She's also just... Carrie White, and her mother, uh, who keeps her at home, is basically Carrie White's nutty mother, but we will excuse the borrowing, because it's good. Uh, but one subplot can't and won't redeem a show, especially one that, despite its self-serious tone, is rife with stupidity. The stifling tribal landscape of prison, with its shifting allegiances and recalibrated expectations, is one of the most perfect story engines a showrunner could ask for. But Wentworth isn't content with that. It has to go beyond the confines of the jail for its writhing, fitful stories. Your daughter has an unexpected, unforeshadowed, and completely out-of-character heroin addiction. Your daughter is dead! You can't go to the funeral. It's very gritty. <laughs> and poor, downtrodden B. Smith, our protagonist, she flits between proto-sociopath and weepy bogan with such unpredictability that she makes Carrie on Homeland look like Carol Brady. <laughs> it's... Worth noting, too, that by the finale, she's been in prison for six months and she hasn't had a preliminary hearing. No trial, just a charge. Uh, she's on remand. But Wentworth isn't too bothered by the realities of the justice or prison systems. The um, listed consultant in the credits on the show wasn't a prisoner or a prison officer or anyone who had anything to do with the system. It was television critic Michael Adato. Uh, <laughs> you can read his glowing review of the show he had a salaried role on in the Sydney Morning Herald. If Wentworth, I know, right? <laughs> if Wentworth is supposed to be camp, it's cast a working too hard. Uh, but my favourite story on the show is one the Wentworth writers' room, if I'm being kind, has also borrowed on Bad Girls, the UK prison drama. The first three seasons had an ongoing story arc about the fitful on and off romance between notorious outspoken lesbian prisoner Nikki and the prison governor Helen. Here we get the same kind of story between notorious outspoken lesbian prisoner Frankie Doyle and prison governor Erica Davidson. She does, uh, like Frankie says, quite literally get off on being there. A few episodes earlier, Governor Delta Goodrum, as I like to call her, uh, <laughs> masturbated to a security camera feed of Frankie and her girlfriend having sex. Wentworth should be about race, gender and power. Once you're inside, the worst has already happened and prison is about making the best of what you've got. Um, creating the best version of normal you can. But 
on Wentworth, the screws have the power and the secret drug addictions, secret abortions, and secret imaginary boyfriends, uh, and the prisoners have none. When you live in an altered world, you make your own rules, but when everyone around you is a bitch and the whole world's on constant amber alert, nothing's very interesting. Susan Sontag, in her essay Notes on Camp, said, When something is just bad rather than camp, it's often because it's too mediocre in its ambition. The artist hasn't attempted to do anything really outlandish. The hallmark of camp is the spirit of extravagance. Camp is a woman walking around in a dress made of three million feathers. And that, my friends, isn't quite three million feathers, but it's a whole shitload of sequins. <laughs> now, I'd, I'd be curious about how many people in the audience have watched Wentworth. I know that not many people had seen Prisoner, but ha- who's seen the Prisoner remake? Great, some of you are qualified to be here. <laughs> You want to see it or you don't? It looks great. Here's, I, I, I love just, it. I just watched the series of that in about two weeks. And when I was in the bubble, it didn't seem as bad. That's the thing. It's, it's really it's, weird. No, like Byron's I, I, here to ruin everything for us. It's yeah. one of those completely unclippable shows where you take something out of context and suddenly it's absurd. Like it I, wasn't, I didn't laugh yeah. at anything when I watched it as it aired. I thought it was bad, but it wasn't funny. <laughs> It's funny that you mentioned Ron Moore because when the girl was running around, all I could think of was the, if you haven't seen Battlestar Galactica, close your ears, but the end when the little girl's running around um, and trying to direct them back to Earth. I am, um, if, if I can flaunt some inside knowledge, Wentworth did actually have a former prisoner as a consultant. Are you right. saying that Michael had gone to prison? No. <laughs> there's, a, there's a lady, um, I met her on the weekend by chance. Right. Um, who, who uh, yes, who uh, had been in prison for several years and who did... Because the, thing, the thing about... Uh, I mean, I didn't want to be a nitpicker. <laughs> I'm going to do it now. Uh, but most of the characters on Wentworth are wearing at least three items of clothing that they could use to kill someone. Mm. Um, like, you're not allowed to zippers in prison and they all have a zipped hoodie. They're all wearing underwire bras, which you can kill somebody with. Like, it's not... Particularly well constructed as an authentic universe. But but that's not good so in a white singlet. They drink from ceramic cups as well, which you know, spent a lot of time in a women's prison. Yeah. 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 Well, <laughs> research. I actually thought that with Wentworth, its reimagining was quite clever because the thing with Beastsmith, you know how you said the daughter got a drug addiction sort mm. of out of nowhere, but that really is a wink back to Prisoner because mm. in the original Prisoner, Beastsmith, who was top dog, when we sort of followed Beastsmith in Prisoner. She's, she's got all the power, she's a hardened criminal yeah. and she is renowned for, for hating anyone that's in that prison who has anything to do with drugs and the reason why is that her daughter died of a drug overdose. So I thought it was actually kind of brilliant having this B. Smith coming in at the bottom, being you know mm. having a daughter that hadn't died but then seeing that play out. But brilliant now when I rewatch it is a very strong word because it yeah. is also like kind of horrible. The woman, um, the, the Turak, the Turak middle-aged woman, basically, is what, with the collar up. Jax and the, holds, Oh, yeah. Jax. She's exactly who I imagine is behind the wheel of every Jeep that annoys me <laughs> in traffic. But she's, it, it, all those scenes involving her looked ridiculous, but actually in the show, by the time it got to that tense 
Bic standoff, I was like, yes, I've kill her. never wanted a character to be killed as much as I wanted Jack's Holt to be killed. Like, I that was really satisfying had to, to watch. Is that the finale though? Yes, it is. So is she definitely? We, we don't. Well, know. see, I I watched be. it with a friend this afternoon. I rewatched that scene, and I I had just assumed that she was dead, and he he's sitting over there said, "No, nah, she's not dead." So maybe she's not. She's dead. Uh, well, we'll I find out dead, just what a pen and artery can do. Does anyone have any questions? For Byron, we've got one up the back. Sean, you've got a microphone. We're just going to kill time. Hope everyone's having a lovely time. There's a bit of a laugh. And the microphone's coming up. You will for the podcast because... Yeah. Oh, hello. Hi, I can't see you. I've just got a couple of comments, actually. Um, I just want to... Wentworth was actually nominated for an AFI recently um, for Best Australian Drama at the local uh, industry actor award, sorry. So I just wanted to make that point. Um, and also, um, Wentworth is a locally made drama. I was just curious to see if you've contacted anyone to come and talk at tonight's event. From the From production Wentworth. of Wentworth? Yeah. No, I, that, uh, that well, wasn't really the intention that, of the event as I understand it, but... Um. By- Byron didn't put this event on, mm-hmm. but if he ever did, I'm sure he'd invite someone from Wentworth. It's, a, it's an interesting question because I know a friend of mine had mentioned that as well, that, that obviously it being made in Melbourne, there's writers around and storyliners around that we could have brought in. Um, I think it's more probably... Um, the, I can't speak for Acme, but I will... Um, so, sort of, I guess, talking about critics and viewers discussing it, but it certainly would have been an interesting perspective. And are you in any way connected with Wentworth? And I don't mean that in a bad way, but have you got a connection with the show? Um, I'm actually one of the producers. Right. Excellent. Well, see, that's really interesting because obviously you sitting there, you're thinking, how did that make you feel listening to Byron's critiques? Do you think there were any reasonable points made in there or do you have any rebuttals that you would make? Oh, it's always interesting to hear people's opinions. To be, to be, can I? Sorry, I'm sorry to interrupt you. To be fair, it's totally deserving of that AFI nomination in the field of Australian drama. It's one of the best, and there are so many things about Wentworth that I really like. Um, I don't know if this is backpedaling. No, no, it's not backpedaling. Because back. no, because the writing, the writing is sometimes fucking terrible. Um, oh no! But oh, I can give you Byron's. Look, I know several. Look, I know several people who worked on the show. But it's worth, so. I've never seen it, and I watched all of those clips and wanted to go home and binge watch. So I did binge watch it. So <laughs> I, um, one lots of people watched it. I watched it week <laughs> by week. I was hooked. No, I, can I can I ask you a question as well? Because it, it, this is actually a, a, a really great opportunity to speak to someone that was involved in the show. Was it intended as as a really really serious drama? And did the camp sort of because it does have some camp value. I mean, if we even just look at Frankie's socks and shoes in that picture there. Like there is some canvas. Yeah. And, and, and aware it's aware those in the is, is that was that intended, and or or you know when you hear this, do you go? Oh, I didn't, we didn't think it was going to be that funny in those scenes. Well, I think when you see clips out of context, it, it's always easy to you know have yeah. a laugh at it. But when you see the show in its entirety, of course, I'm a little bit biased. But when you see the show in its entirety, it, I don't feel like it is. But it's interesting to hear another point of view. Mm. It's nice. I to agree have with little, you, and I said little that. Nods to you know, the. Kind of the campy nature of original Prisoner as well. I mean, the big thing I thought that was a beautiful homage to the way that Prisoner used to kind of be. I don't know. I think it looks like a great show. So, thank you. Another comment I want to make is just about um, Australian drama as a whole, and and it always 
irks me why we tend to bag Australian dramas. We should be supporting Australian dramas. They're, they're employing a lot of um, wonderful actors and actresses. Danielle Cormack and Nicole De Silva, they're fantastic. Um, Chris McQuaid, she was a wonderful actress. She also got nominated for an actor award So um, for Wentworth. So I just want to say, you know, we, we tend to bag Australian dramas. We should be supporting them. They're also employing a lot of writers and producers. And Absolutely agree. That's great. Um, this is a very interesting moment, I think, where, where critic and people involved in the show don't often in real life get in the same room. There's luckily about five rows between you, but we can clear <laughs> no, no, that no. if it comes down to I, it. I, it's great to hear other people. I agree with you that we should celebrate Australian drama, but we should celebrate good Australian drama. And this, this is... No, I'm deadly serious, right? This is a good Australian drama. For an Australian drama, this is a great show. But when you line this up against a premium cable drama from overseas, it's crap. You know, um, the writing's yeah, terrible. I, um, wow. I mean, this I, is another argument within itself. But it, they were but just that's, the points, But that's, sorry, to they be were fair. Just, that, that's, well, to be fair. That's they were not just a product the points of, I wanted to make. We, we listened to yours, so I was just giving you my you That's not a product. Really point, and I would like to say thank you for putting your hand up and actually making those points. It's a really interesting perspective to get. And it's brave of you to do so as well in front of a crowd. Not that I think you have to be brave. I like the show. I watched it all in two weeks. So, yay, Byron's the worst. <laughs> Can I say? No, just one, stop one, it. Byron, I'm taking your shovel. One sentence. The problem is not with writers. We have very talented writers in this country. Pete McTighe, who wrote the first six episodes of this show, very talented guy. I used to know him socially. Haven't spoken to him in five years. Is this because very, you never will shows? again? No. <laughs> uh, but... We don't treat writers the way that they're treated in the US or the UK here. We have a very different system of producing television where the writer is at the bottom of the food chain. Sure, go. Could we get you on the mic if that's okay? Not for a legal reason, but just so so we can all hear. I know what you're saying and and we in Australia are trying to embrace this whole uh, writer's room uh, process, which... It works very well overseas. The problem here is that we have far... Our budgets are much less than they are overseas. Mm. We have, on the second series of Wentworth, embraced as much as we can the writer's room process um, by having four writers that rotate all the way through. They sit in the same room. They edit each other's scripts, which is as close as we can get to Mm. the um, overseas version of a writer's room. No, and I understand. And as a TV critic, I've written about this a lot, which is that that we often, and I'm sure you could speak to this, is that often a writer's room in Australia has two weeks to do what overseas they do in three months, you know? And that's... It's not that we have... Yeah, but it's a, it's a funding problem and it's something that's changing. And yeah, it is. It is absolutely changing and I yeah. completely understand and agree that we do need more time to write scripts, but we're not in the fortunate position as a lot of overseas companies and production houses are in regards to budgets and time to produce shows. That's but we, we are working towards doing that. I do, I do understand. It's totally fine. Okay, well, what we might do is, is hold off... I, want, I think if there's at the end of... Um, after we speak to Clem and we talk about Orange is the New Black... If there's any more questions or comments that people want to make, I think we'll go through it then. But um, let's just keep it moving, the night moving forward a bit. And we're going to talk to Clementine Ford. She's our final guest. She's going to be talking about, as I said, the Netflix television sensation Orange is the New Black. 
It's a series based on the memoir of Piper Kerman. And if you haven't seen it yet, I would recommend that you consume the whole series as soon as you can. It's kind of made to be consumed in one go. It's funny and it's raw and it's got a really great cast. And uh, I'm pretty enthusiastic about the show. I'm pretty sure Clem's going to be enthusiastic about the show because... If I'm right, you're going to be talking about the top five things that you think makes Orange is the New Black one of the best shows on television. Um, slightly, yes, except I changed that slightly and forgot to tell you. So, well, <laughs> but that's all right. It doesn't, well, it doesn't moment, affect. Is this, gentlemen, is this on? Can you guys hear? Can you guys hear? Um, cool. How about that recent sporting event then? That wasn't awkward at all. Um, sorry, I've just somehow managed to disconnect myself from that, which I think I'll need afterwards. Um, yes, I am going to be talking about Orange is the New Black. And I've put together a little slideshow, which is new for me, so that's good. Prison is about learning things, so I've done that for myself today. And I've learnt how to use Google Drive's PowerPoint. So I'll just that's on, right? Orange is the New Black, yes. Um, right, so before... Before I sort of get into the fun stuff, I'm just going to give some not boring but kind of heavy sort of dark background on the prison system for women in America. So, sorry, we'll just go through this quickly because I know it's a bit of a downer. Um, so, the stats on women's incarceration, uh, you might not be able to read that very well, but the lifetime likelihood of imprisonment for women is 1 in 56. However, the chance of a woman being sent to prison obviously varies by race. 1 in 19 black women will be sent to prison, 1 in 45 Hispanic women, and 1 in 118 white women. Um, in 2010, black women were incarcerated at nearly three times the rate of white women, and Hispanic women were incarcerated at nearly 1.6 times the rate of white women. On the other hand, between 2000 and 2010, the rates of black women being incarcerated actually decreased by 35%. Yay! The rates of incarceration for Hispanic women unfortunately increased by 28%, while the figure was 38% for white women. Um, on pregnancy in prison, 1 in 25 women in state prisons are pregnant when they're admitted into the system, and the figure increases with federal crimes, with 1 in 33 women pregnant when they're admitted to the federal system. Um, these facts all come from the Sentencing Project website. And in all but 13 states in the US, women can be shackled during labour and birth, and the majority of children born to incarcerated mothers are immediately separated from them. Um, more than three quarters of all the total staff sexual misconduct across male and female prisons involves women inmates and male correctional officers, and 59% of women in prison will have some kind of chronic and or communicable medical problems, including HIV, hepatitis C, and sex sexually transmitted diseases, as opposed to 43% of men. Nearly three quarters, 73% of women in state prisons in 2004, had symptoms of a current mental health problem compared to 55% of men. Um, and the reason that I give the background on, on all of that is because I think that it provides some very real kind of context to the world in which the women in Orange is the New Black are living in. Um, as Ben and Byron both said, the positive thing about prison dramas is that they allow in a fairly like male-saturated, heavy kind of TV context for us to explore not just women's stories, but women's stories across a broad range of backgrounds. Um, now, obviously, the negative side of that is that to explore Indigenous women and queer women and Hispanic women and any kind of women who don't happen to be middle-class white women, to explore their stories on TV, we have to put them in prison. Um, which leads me to our protagonist, Piper Chapman. <laughs> but they got into Barney's with their artisanal soaps. So I'm going to go ahead and assume that Genji Cohen deliberately sets up Piper in the first episode to appeal to the kind of audience that she thinks will be watching. 
middle class, predominantly white, interested in artisanal soaps, interested in artisanal soaps made from organic products. The kind of people who would download an entire series from Netflix, me, and binge watch it on a Sunday while recovering from too many tacos and tequilas consumed at their local neighbourhood taqueria the night before. When Piper finds out that her former life as a lesbian's drug mule slash mole has come to bite her on the butt, she just about has a breakdown on the spot. She's middle class. She lives in a nice house paid for by her fiancé's Jewish parents. She's getting married. (laughs) What's going to happen to her? Of course, the beauty of Orange is the New Black, as we soon learn, not just as viewers but also as people critically watching the show, is it's not about Piper. Pop culture and TV is not a place where minorities are typically given a lot of attention or airtime or even complexities. And while it's definitely troubling that to explore a lot of these things, as I said, you need to create a central character that happens to be a prison, it also means that we can finally embrace some of the sorely lacking diversity that we're missing on our television screens. Again, on the other hand, the beauty of setting it in a prison is that it allows for a rich exploration of just why these discriminations and oppressions exist. For example, Orange is the New Black is one of the few shows I can think of that portrays a mentally unstable woman as neither fodder for the sexual fantasies of its male viewers or as an, alternate, as an alternately repulsive, unsympathetic kind of terrifying behemoth who threatens everyone in her path. Of course, I'm talking about... <laughs> crazy eyes... Oh, Crazy Eyes, or Suzanne, as her actual name is, and I will refer to her as that from now on, latches pretty quickly onto Piper. And even though it's it's intentionally played for laughs, as her story develops, and thanks also to the amazing acting skills of Uzo Aduba, she becomes a figure of sympathy. Piper's discomfort at being targeted by the woman who calls her Dandelion becomes less interesting to the audience as we realise that Suzanne, whose backstory we still haven't been privy to, has, mysterious has a mysterious three-dimensional life beyond just being a supporting character in Piper's prison drama. Her parents are both white, which I'm looking forward to finding out the backstory to. She has a fascination and appreciation for English literature and Shakespeare, and she's clearly very intelligent. And she also has a keen sense of self and a pride that needs protection, as we all do. It's assumed she accepts the labelling of herself until we find out that she doesn't even understand it. Also, a little bit of foreshadowing for later on as well, when she's talking about psych versus the shoe. Of course, at this point, Piper sent Pensataki to the, uh, to the psych ward, thinking that she's going to get her some help, but finding out, obviously, from Suzanne that it's, um, it's not quite the therapy den that she might think it is. Um, so when Piper's fiance, this is kind of at a point in their relationship where um, they've obviously come past Suzanne wanting to make Piper her wife and making it very uncomfortable for Piper and the audience and then flipping that on its head when we're asked then to sympathise and shown why we should sympathise with Suzanne. And that is really made very clear when Larry delivers the interview to... Who's seen Orange is the New Black here, by the way? Okay, good, lots of people. So when Larry does the interview with NPR, he's just written his column for Modern Love. Um, he's obviously suffering on the outside as the forgotten fiancé, and he's a struggling writer, and he writes a column for Modern Love. And um, it's published, and then he's interviewed by NPR. And because he's angry at Piper and because he's also just a bit of a thoughtless goof, like he's not a badly intentioned person at all, but I think that the, he, he delivers this interview with NPR and he talks about all of these stories that he doesn't really have ownership over and that he doesn't have a right to be telling. And um, as a similarly white, middle-class, public radio listening 
activist myself, I felt the slap of recognition in watching as those women's stories were co-opted for Larry's benefit and for the benefit of a listenership that prides itself on being very aware. And Suzanne's response to Piper is just the talking to that Piper and many, perhaps, of the rest of us need. Um, of course, I think that that's one of the best scenes. In a, in a lot of... I'm, I can't touch on every single character today. You know, there's so many ones that I'm going to miss, but that's one of the, the best scenes in the whole series that demonstrate that that kind of audience identification with Piper needs to really be messed with and that this isn't Piper's story, that Piper has just put herself in the centre and assumed the role of the leading protagonist in the way that a lot of us are kind of empowered to do so and that Suzanne has this entire life going on outside of her that is worthy of consideration and worthy of respect and that she's not just there to be kind of the foil for Piper. Um, so that leads me to two of my favourites, the perfect double act, the best love story around. <laughs> Tasty and pussy. <laughs> and because I just learnt PowerPoint today, I wanted to put that in. <laughs> um, Tasty and Pusey provide much of the humour in Orange is the New... Is not, uh, Orange is the New Black. I've written it sort of around in a dyslexic kind of way on here. The chemistry between Danielle Brooks and uh, Samira Wiley is key to the success of their hilarious double acts, lampooning waspish white women, talking about the problems of the world. <laughs> they don't just provide a lot of comic relief, but they also emphasise the difference between that world, which is also the world of Piper, and their world. <laughs> but the best moment between the two friends comes when Tasty violates her parole and ends up back in prison. Not only is it a rare insight into the genuine care and affection that these two have for each other's well-being, but it also signifies the cycle of institutionalisation that becomes the fate for many people disadvantaged by the system from a young age. We know that Piper isn't going to have any of the prob these problems that Tasty has when she leaves because she's going to be emerging into a society that works very hard to protect people like her, and I would argue people like us as well. Not so for many of the women at Litchfield and in jails all over the world who have to contend with all of the things that put them there in the first place. But seriously, one of the most tender moments of the series and also very good kind of um, exploration of the bonds of friendship that women can form in prison. Now, look, I don't know whether or not this is a portrayal that would be pleasing to women of colour in America. I'm not sure. But I do think that the fact that so many different kinds of stories can be explored in Orange is the New Black is, it, is at least a positive. Obviously, not a perfect show, but um, certainly a very good one. Um, and so finally, because I don't have time to look at any of the other characters, um, I'm going to look at my last one here, and that's everyone's favourite God-bothering contradiction. Pentatucky. <laughs> they lesbianing knitting together. <laughs> Can't even say that. I like that it sounds like lesbian knitting together. <laughs> lesbian knitting. They're lesbianing together. Oh, Pentatucky. Taryn Manning, unfortunately for her, seems born to play the role of a meth-addicted, born-again Christian. And she certainly does it with vigour. <laughs> I did hear that, um, and I think maybe by the, the end of the first season when Piper takes a swing at her mouth, I think maybe she's supposed to have knocked all of her teeth out because I did read in an interview with Taryn Manning that she's convinced the producers to let her wear her normal teeth in the next season, so I assume she's going to have had some caps done. But, I mean, you know, in... In American kind of TV sort of culture, to do a show not only where you're wearing pretty shapeless clothes all the time, but you're pretty much wearing no makeup because I think um, she said that she tried to sneak 
mascara here and there, but, but the producers would always make her take it off. It's a pretty brave thing for a woman to put a face that looks like that on a TV that big. So I think that she's pretty great. Um, so Pensatucky is threatening and violent, and we later find out that she's in prison for murdering an abortion nurse who sasses her. Her defence lawyer's suggestion that she did it to avenge the children seems to take hold, and voila, she is one of God's chosen ones. But there's more to Pensatucky than just raving anger and snap decisions. Again, her background is very different to Piper's, and she can't conceivably be compared as someone who just made the wrong choices. Um, as I said, her the abortion that she has that the nurse sort of mocks her for and she goes back and shoots her. That's her fifth abortion. And she explains to her boyfriend in a flashback that she would rather keep taking drugs than have a baby. And she knows that the child would be taken away from her anyway. Um, so there's like a whole lot of different kinds of issues other than Piper's that get someone into that position. So after Piper sets her up and sends her to solitary and then the psych ward and then um, organises for her to be released, Piper seems to expect to be rewarded for this. Um, for doing the right thing, a fairly notable commentary on the expectation of most privileged people that we'd be rewarded for just showing up for the Equal Opportunity Fair. Pentateuchy tells Piper a few home truths exactly about what her stunt achieved and the effect it had on her and her place in the prison system. Um, so it all comes back to Piper, who for all intents and purposes is the reflection back to a certain viewer of self-indulgence and relative protection from the reality of the world. Even in that scene to be as simple as something as just saying a prayer to something that she doesn't believe in, to get out of having someone be mad at her and have it be so simple for her, this is the way her life has always worked out. In fact, it's an anomaly for someone like Piper to be in prison, as she reminds herself at the start, as her friends and family keep reminding her, as she doesn't feel like she's supposed to be around these women. And we see that crystallise and we see her attitude to that really crystallise in a visit early on from her mother when she realises that actually... That's not the case. I seemed to remember in uh, recollecting watching that that Piper had said something like, in response, I'm exactly like these women, um, which would have led so beautifully to my closing gif, <laughs> which I hope that she'll spend the next season doing. So thank you very much. Uh, I'm just going to throw straight to the audience now. Does anyone have any questions or comments that they want to make about Orange is the New Black? Or is everyone just wanting Wentworth round two? <laughs> um, Stella, did you have... Oh, I just... Um, sorry. Thanks. Um, I just had a comment about um, Wentworth, which seems incredibly trite, given what we were talking about before. But how... On earth did they perfect the smoky eye in prison? <laughs> All of those women had impeccable eye makeup. Ah, uh, that was more of a comment than a question, really. I noted <laughs> Nicole de Silva's eye makeup as well, particularly in yes. that scene where she and the governor make love. It's TV, everybody. It's TV. Seriously. But the women on Orange is the New Black aren't fully made up. No. No, but the penal system is much harsher in America. No, that's not true. Chris McQuaid's got yellow eyeshadow on. No, I know, but it's to be fair, like Chris McQuaid's character, Jax Holt, has yellow eyeshadow on even when she's been in the medical ward for four days with no access 
to her room. So, One of the things I really liked about Orange is the New Black, which uh, is only a comment on that show because I haven't seen any of the other shows discussed here today. Um, we're having an um, argument about eyeshadow right now, <laughs> and so that's not going to work for me. But I, I liked that scene where um, Suzanne pees on Piper's floor in the middle of the night and the only thing that Piper can clean it up with is sanitary pads. That mm. just for some like bizarre reason, when I was watching that, it, that was one of the scenes that most kind of drove home to me how little choice they have over. Like she couldn't even cl- get up and clean it in the middle of the night because mm. you can't be out of. You know. It also made me think of how many options there are with sanitary pads of things that you can do. <laughs> Orange is the New Black really opened that up to me. Thongs. You Didn't she use it for the, the thongs yeah. in the first episode? when she Absolutely. I actually saw that in like the British equivalent of That's Life where they suggested you could also make Easter outfits with it because they make really good bunny ears. <laughs> Maybe that will happen in season two. I don't know. Um, I, I really want to talk about Orange is the New Black, but I feel like there's a lot of comments... But I hope, I hope it's not just the same people, even though I love everyone that's been saying stuff. But does anyone have any comments about either Wentworth or uh, the original Prisoner or Orange is the New Black um, that won't involve fighting Byron? I'd like to know what people think are the similarities between the show because for me, one of maybe not so much Prisoner because it's, it is so, like, 70s and, and gloriously cheesy. Mm. But in a way as well, I think... Mm that demonstrating those relationships between women on screen I think is really interesting and really important Mm. and the different ways that they communicate with each other like in Orange is the New Black with Laverne Cox playing Sophia you know also a great thing to have a trans woman playing a trans character on TV but the hair salon that she runs and that kind of like functioning as a place for I mean, I don't, I don't want to say that it's as clumsy, although it probably is as clumsy as them going to her for advice or whatever, you know, the maternal kind of figure. But that, that functions for a lot of the storylines to kind of come out and for her to feature in the relationships with those women there because in some ways she probably does position herself as an, as an outsider um, because of her backstory. Mm. So that's what I find kind of interesting about all the shows is, is how, like, thrust together women who wouldn't normally find themselves you know, crossing paths in real life are, f- are forced to find connections and not only benefit from it, but actually find, like, a lot of common ground. Mm. I think that's probably a similarity between... I mean, Wentworth and uh, Orange is the New Black both obviously have a, um, someone, a middle-class woman who thinks of herself as respectable being thrust into a very confronting world in that way. Um, and Prisoner did that like every month. They had a new one coming in. So that's sort of, I guess... Um, do you think that we would watch... Do you think that there would be as much popularity for shows like that? If I mean, because it kind of troubles me to think that I wouldn't watch a show that didn't give me that entrance point, but maybe I wouldn't because... I'm not sure. I mean, but... but maybe I'm just used to seeing it done that way. I don't but know. all shows need an entrance point, don't they? Yeah. I mean, they need some way to, for, for the viewer to access it and... But why is, it, why, is it assu- why is it assumed that the viewer accesses it through a middle-class perspective, you know? Um, well, like you said, in, in yeah. Orange is a New Black case, because it's on Netflix. Yeah. You know, it's, it's going to be that way. Um, and also based on a book as well, of course, so... Yeah, and, and I mean, the TV makers have their demographics, obviously. They have the people that they want, that they want to be showing it to, and all the, all the people that they think they can 
make the biggest hit with. Um, and, and, and so they do that. I don't... I, pr- I mean, it prob- maybe it wouldn't be a, um, a, as popular without that, that character, or, or maybe it would. It's a complete unknown, but it's, we, it's we obviously what they're doing to try and give, um, give pampered people like us a way in. Okay, we'll go to the audience. Okay, this is a really unrelated question now because the topic's gone on, and I guess it's more a comment, but I was just going to say, just talking about the makeup on Wentworth and Prisoner as opposed to Orange is the New Black, because Orange is the New Black, as you mentioned, is based on a book, and the person who wrote the book lived those experiences, and she actually is involved in the show to quite some extent. So just looking at like how you know the first two shows discussed were more of a like a soap opera, and this is much more of a memoir type show, and just wondering if that's got more to do with it than just like Australian versus American production. I guess that's more of a I couldn't possibly say. I mean, I don't think that there's anything wrong with those two shows being completely different and having different intentions. Like I said, I haven't seen Wentworth, so I can't speak to that at all. But um, I don't. I, it personally didn't distract me seeing Frankie have big smoky eyes. From I my she beautiful. from my understanding, women in yeah, women in prison. From my understanding, that's been gleaned from Orange Is the New Black. <laughs> women in prison will find little, you know, like contraband or whatever. So who, who's to say whether or not she, she put her makeup on with Maybelline or a piece of chalk Someone that she dyed black? I don't know. in their jacksie. You don't know. <laughs> not, to, I mean, not to keep talking about eyeshadow. Byron, um, I'm going to have to shut you down. No, there. no. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe I expected the wrong things from Wentworth. Um, but, my, like, I don't have a problem with Frankie wearing eyeshadow. I think she would wear eyeshadow. Women can buy makeup in prison. They can have it sent to them through the mail. That people wear makeup in prison. The, the, I have a problem with Serena Clanton's character wearing a full, perfect face of TV makeup. She looks great, but she's got a full face of makeup on. She's got eyeliner, clear mascara. She's which character? Doreen. Doreen. Yeah. But anyway, it's not. It's neither here nor there. I just think there's a real. There was a real shift in television about ten years ago towards being authentic in the environments that you're portraying. Like, you look at a show like... No, but I'm serious, okay? You look at a show like ER, which started in 1994. Even in 1994, they were not putting full faces of TV makeup on their nurses because nurses don't wear full faces of television makeup. I'd love to come. Can I'll do a story I, on the show. I, so. I, I, wrote, I wrote an article about how much I love Wentworth. Get me <laughs> I would like to get very close to Nicole de Silva. Okay. I've been close to Nicole de Silva. Pretty Shut amazing. Up. I don't think she's only about, a real panel thing. To she's talk. only Shut about up. this tall, incidentally. Is she? She's well, tiny. I'll take her home in my pocket. That sounds <laughs> Everyone on TV is tiny. This is, an, this is a problem. Um, any other questions in the audience? Because, oh wait, we do have one, we do have one. Um, I guess it's something, oh shit. Um, (laughs) crap. Um. That's on the podcast now. Congratulations. um, This is a safe space. I almost did it again. (laughs) Um, I guess we haven't really addressed, um, the queer characters that much. I mean, there's some on Wentworth, there were some on Prisoner, there were some on... There are some on Orange is the New Black. There's actually a lot. And what I like about Orange is the New Black um, 
not having seen Wentworth, I don't want to say something controversial, but I don't know if it exists in if you do, as you much can of a... If you do, silver, so <laughs> it's all good. Well, I'd love to. Um, it's not, I guess it's not, it, like on Orange is the New Black, it seems really nuanced. I mean, there's, it's not, not all of the lesbian relationships in prison exist on that kind of prison archetype of they're being necessary and they want to get their rocks off so they're having sex with each other because they can't have sex with the people outside. Mm. They're actually like properly well-rounded lesbian queer characters and mm. there's some people that are, you know, queer-ish mm. and that's probably the best word to describe them. They're not straight, they're not gay, they're not gay out of necessity, there's something in the middle. Gay for the start. Uh, it's I actually, is there the is term. a term because I'll just say that Acme sent me a list of 50 slang terms from prison and I printed them out, and I believe that's called a prison wolf. Is someone who is normally straight on the outside but engages in sexual activity while incarcerated. A prison wolf. A prison, prison wolf. wolf would be a great name for it, I quite like how the, a lot of the queer sex in Orange is the New Black is not designed to be necessarily titillating to the viewer. Like, it's not sort of... It's not, it's not the typical kind of lesbian sex that you might see on like an HBO show or something. Mm. Like, a lot of the sex that Natasha Leone has with... Um, oh, I can't remember the Australian actress's name. But Yale. Yale Stone. Yale. A lot of that is quite, like, full-on and, um, like, obviously not written by a man for, me, for men to watch, you know, which I find quite interesting. I thought it and looked like sexual. it was written by people that probably have lesbian sex or at least a good insight into it. it, it well, hence, hence they're not written by men for other yeah. men to watch. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, I'm sorry, I got distracted. <laughs> so I just got really thrown by that last thing. It's yes. also also the woman who, um, again, I can't remember her name, but she's got the dog, the helper dog, you know. It's, the dog's called Boo or she's called Boo and that's terrible. Oh, yes, I wasn't yes, calling yes. her a dog. Oh, uh, yeah, Boo and Little Boo. Yeah. I think it's, you know, she's a, a stand-up comic and I think it's great to have a woman who just looks like her on TV mm. in America because she's... You know, she's she's like a butch dyke who wears a singlet. She's not skinny, and like, there's nothing about a lot of the characters on Orange Is the New Black that's designed to appeal to that kind of gaze. You know. To be fair, Wentworth has characters that look like that, but they're. And actors, to be fair, Prisoner has so. characters like yeah. that. I well, think well, it's actually a really Ben made that point earlier, and it's a kind of a really great thing about prison yeah. TV. It's the only time we can see women of all shapes and sizes. <laughs> so. That was a huge thing. And colours. Prisoner. Back, I mean. It, Particularly back then, when you know, um, TV, you know, famous people were probably uh, more expected to be glamorous even than they are now. Um, yeah, prisoner was had a had a wide variety of appearances, and I'd say, uh, as as Clem said, no one, none of the women in prisoner were being um, made up to appeal to uh, to horny men. Mm, yeah, other than Lizzie yeah. Birdsworth, as discussed. Other than Lizzie Birdsworth, <laughs> but when you're that sexy, you can't help it. You can't help it. Denim won't, won't, won't shut that down. Okay, <laughs> ladies and gentlemen, it, it's nine o'clock. It is time for us to wind up tonight's uh, very lively discussion. I have to say it was... Lights out. Yeah, it was, I think that it was really fantastic. I'm so glad that a couple of people from Wentworth came um, because it was really great to discuss that with you and also really novel seeing a critic after delivering something, having to then answer questions from the people that he's been critiquing. And I think we will all remember this experience very fondly, except for Byron, maybe. Oh, no, no, I'd like to do it more. So. Ladies Not and gentlemen, please thank our panel. When you come forward, Byron Bates, Ben Cobden. And Jess McGuire and Acme.
Just very quickly as well, um, on behalf of ACME, thank you, Jess, for hosting and for the rest uh, of the panel tonight for coming along and giving us your opinions. Um, as the ACME representative who was looking up those prison slang terms, if anyone wants to be terrified about never going to prison, just look up the amount of slang they use. There's frightening words for everything. <laughs> it will put you off it. But once again, please join me in thanking uh, tonight's host. For more recordings of talks and live events, go to ACME Channel and the ACME website.